Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. the dirt a podcast about archaeology anthropology and our shared human past i'm anna and i'm amber and everybody shut up because it's my birthday (laughs) happy birthday bud oh thanks thanks i went all the way around the sun and now i'm older that's how that works and for my birthday episode since i love thinking about how histories are created and how the past is packaged and also why we think the way we do about events and lives of the past i wanted to take it back to someone who is often considered to be a founder of the field of history itself and somebody that i think about often being herodotus of halicarnassus So specifically for Anna, to help with that map of the world in your brain that we're slowly building. It's my (laughs) years long puzzle. (laughs) So Halicarnassus was an ancient Greek city created out in the Greek empire and what is now Bodrum in Turkey. So it's in Anatolia. So today the shape of Turkey is more or less a blobby rectangle. And Halicarnassus slash Bodrum is at the bottom left corner of that rectangle just where it juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. Thank you. The city was famous for the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. Uh, and so the building dates to 350, 353-ish BCE, which is also known simply as the tomb of Mausolus, whose name provided the origin of the word mausoleum. And it ranked as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But we're not talking about Mausolus, we're talking about a different dead Greek guy. So Herodotus of Halicarnassus, or just Herodotus, um, was known, was around from about 484 to 425 ish or 413 BCE. Yeah, I guess people are unclear about when he died, and there's quite the range. There's probably, there's probably a big difference. Well, I think it's like when the last time that we know he has anything written versus oh, when they think when he, he perhaps died. When he retired. He may have, reti- he may he have retired. Yeah, okay. Okay, that makes sense. So um, he was a Greek writer who invented the field of study known today as history. He was within a few years of Thucydides, the other first guy to write history. Um, There are two history dads. So, yeah, it's progressive of us. Um, And so he was called the father of history by the Roman writer and orator Cicero. Um, So Cicero wrote about this in... De re legibus. It was it was that one, um, and so he's talking about could have said the anything. histories. <laughs> but no, that's that's what it was. Okay, um, uh, and so he um, has also been called the father of lies uh, by critics. His critics who claim these histories are little more than tall tales. So um, critics, including the Greek historian, well, Greek Roman, historian Plutarch in response to Cicero's um, De Relegibus when he wrote on the malice of Herodotus. In Um, Plutarch's great work, -uh. (laughs) nah, 
yeah be like <laughs> Herodotus is cancelled no um, <laughs> the first century CE and so, so people kind of follow fall in one of two camps when it comes to Herodotus divisive guy so while it's true that Herodotus sometimes relays inaccurate information or exaggerates for effect his accounts have consistently been found to be more or less reliable yeah we'll talk about that later so more and less so more in and the less, present yes. day in the pre- so today Herodotus continues to be recognized as the father of history and a reliable source of information about the ancient world by the majority of European classics-based historians. We can we can talk a little bit about the paternity of history um, in, in a little while. But first, the dude. So while little is known of Herodotus's life, it seems like including when he died, um, <laughs> it seems likely <laughs> it, it does seem likely that he came from a wealthy aristocratic family in Asia Minor who could afford to pay for his education. So um he was from a Greek family, like in in the in the colony in Asia Minor, and um, so he probably got a pretty good education because he was a pretty good writer. Um, not that I'm not arguing that you like need to get an MFA. Don't take it that way. Like, no, doesn't. just that if he <laughs> like, he was he, he seems was clearly to be educated, grounded in the traditions of writing and rhetoric that were yeah, and and of the day. rhetoric. And rhetoric also, like he was clearly well read and rhetoricized because uh, he makes a lot of um, literary references in his his own writing. Um, and he does, it's, um, I don't know, I like to think of the histories as travel writing. Mm-hmm. And so he writes a lot about travel, some of which presumably is his own. He certainly claims it to be his own. Uh, and so he needed to have like means to get around and be like, Look at that weird boat. And oh, spoilies. And so no spoilies. <laughs> oh, there were plenty of weird boats for Herodotus. Um, Fair. So his descriptions of battles are quite precise and always told from the foot of view, from, from the point of view of the foot of view. <laughs> from the Gosh. foot of view of a point soldier. Uh, always, <laughs> always told from the point of view of a foot soldier, um, which suggests that he himself might have spent some time in the army or maybe he was just going for like a Stephen Crane thing. Like Stephen Crane was never. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he wanted it to sound <laughs> more like a reliable narrator. Well, we could talk about other writers that he ever loves. It is my birthday. <laughs> so we need to think for a minute about how history itself was considered when Herodotus was writing. And so thinking about like sort of getting past like the, the, the even the term history, but just thinking about how do we think about the past and how do we capture and describe the past? and relate to it. So apart from rulers ordering commemoration of their deeds, um, which sometimes uh, those weren't true. Um, you, and they were, <laughs> the, the lives of the average person weren't really committed to pen and paper or stylus and clay or chisel and stone and all that, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I mean? I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the ancient Greeks, the benchmark for talking about the past was Homer. Um, and also, as you know, you may suspect from the last sentence I shared with you, the past was sort of like a vague, shimmery time that existed between myth and reality. So it, it's something that kind of um, informs how we how we act and what we do and why we do it. But we don't necess- It's not necessarily tethered to 
like sort of facts on the ground, actual things that happened in the past. Herodotus went for something different. And um, as and which he sort of lays pretty plain in his opening statement from the histories, Herodotus of Halicarnassus here displays his inquiry so that human achievements may not become forgotten in time and great and marvelous deeds, some displayed by Greeks, some by barbarians, may not be without their glory. We believe, and he sort of tells us, that he wrote the histories because he's like, how did the Persian War happen? Like, how did this happen? Like, uh, like, sort of. I have his, some questions. His, like his world was affected by it, and and so it just sort of like, how did we get here? And so that kind of inquiry, eh? that's what that's what the histories means is inquiries. Research, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and so because he he's like, I wanna I wanna figure this out. I wanna find out what's at the root of this, and that's what I'm going to do now. If you're familiar with Homer, you will know that. Almost like, I mean, there isn't a lot of human agency in Homer. Like these are things that are decided by deities and they're decided by the gods and the gods are petty and they're, um, they're sort of setting things in motion and humans are just kind of like at the whims of the gods. Um, and Herodotus doesn't do that. He also doesn't claim to be inspired by the muses. Cause if you know Homer, there's sort of an invocation of the muses. Um, it's weird that he names each of his books after a muse, but but isn't inspired by the muses. So, huh? Yeah. So each of the books of of Herodotus, like the ti- the title, is a name of a different muse. And so his opening lines still pay homage to the world of the Homeric hero and his perpetual striving for Klaus, which is glory. Um, and so after all, Homer too reported great de- deeds by Greeks and non Greeks mostly Trojans, um, <laughs> and preserve them for posterity. So um, Herodotus combined the two major themes of Homeric epic, travel and warfare, um, into a single whole. So travel and the insights they yield are as dominant a theme in the ethnographic sections of the histories as expansion, warfare, and conflict are in the historical sections. Um, Herodotus uses the gradual expansion of the Persian Empire to delve deeply into the cultures of those who came under its influence in the century preceding the war. Um, in his account, the historical and the cultural influence each other. So what specifically sets Herodotus and his inquiries apart then is sort of the proto-scientific way he explores the inner workings of the world. The question why drives this inquiry in all its aspects. It brings together the different strands of Herodotian investigation. Why did the Greeks and the barbarians, so the non-Greeks, go to war with each other? Why does the Nile flood? Why do the women of Cyrene abstain from eating beef? All great questions. Yeah, and so Herodotus' efforts to establish himself as a credible researcher and narrator are emphasized throughout his work. He is careful to tell his reader his sources for information on foreign lands, whether he witnessed things personally or learned them from a reliable source, something that is fundamental to historians still. Yeah, so he didn't use primary texts so much because, like you said, in an oral tradition, that's not so much an option, but he is careful to kind of include, to cite his sources. Citing... Citation is doing a lot of work there. I will. Yeah, we'll admit. we'll get to some of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, but he does, um, but he does see a value. Like he does see that, like I'm going to legitimate, 
legitimate my claims that I'm yeah, making. Yeah, he wants to present himself as a reliable narrator. And he, so we're going to get to this a little later, but he's, he's very careful to do things like provide exact dimensions for things and things that are sort of like verifiable. <laughs> so he's saying like, if I'm telling you this information, like this really specific measurement of this particular type of boat, and that checks out, then you can believe other things I say because I'm being direct and truthful. Which is super sneaky. It is, he's, a, he's a sneaky So guy. I can say super racist things because you're like, well, he did know the dimensions of those boats. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that he calls all non-Greeks barbarians might have been a clue. I, we're, we're starting from like, the bar is in the floor. Yeah, it's the true. bar is quite low. So well, where that, is the bar? The bar is quite low. You'll listeners, you'll get that. You're That's gonna, a very funny joke. In a few joke. minutes, you're going to laugh really hard. <laughs> okay, great, okay. great, great, great. Let's all get there. So that is a brief bio of the father of history, one of our history dads. So now let's talk about the fruits of his labors and how he presented them. So originally, the histories were written in lecture format, and we're talking. We're not talking your weekday one hundred and one class. That's an hour and a half. Just the introductory section to each of the nine books that make up the histories would have taken four hours to read aloud. Oh, so they were in my Greek class. <laughs> oh, Anna, I didn't ask you uh, when we started. Have you read the histories? I know that I've read excerpts from them, but I couldn't okay. tell you what books they were from and okay. when. Yeah. So, I mean, yes. Probably book yes two. No. Sure. A lot of people read book two. I believe. But, okay. I wasn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. The structure of the histories is an interesting mix of influences and rhetorical decisions on the author's part. So sticking with the introductions to the books or logoi in Greek. These were likely originally intended to all be grouped together in a continuous text, which if my math checks out, would have taken 36 hours to read aloud. However, each of these beefy preambles were about disparate topics and would have been really disjointed and difficult to get through, as if 36 hours worth of writing is not difficult to get through, uh, and difficult to get through when combined. So Herodotus... But I mean, that sets you up. That sets you up for like a good sense of what you would be experiencing just reading the history straight through. Yeah, sure. So Herodotus... Could have used an editor. Bless him. Herodotus recognized this problem and decided to group everything around one single theme, the expansion of the Achaemenid or Persian empire between 550 and 479 BCE. And so this kind of gives him a device or a framework to talk about things like topography or ethnography. So if he's talking about a battle in a certain area, he can then describe the region and what it looks like, or he can describe the people and its customs. And so all of that now became integrated chapters of a historical chronicle. Herodotus was heavily influenced by the Homeric works, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, I deliberately phrased it that way, Homeric works, because as we've said before, Homer might not have been one guy. So sometimes he quotes the legendary bard, who may not have been one guy. I was like, Shakespeare? Yes, the bard of Stratford on Mycenae. <laughs> I was just thinking, because my, my brain went, maybe Homer was a lady. And I was like, like Lady Shakespeare? And then you said bard, and I was like, no. In my brain. <laughs> No, but he did, he, he does quote Homer or okay. he uses words that any Greek would have recognized as Homeric. And I, I am going to reference Shakespeare now, <laughs> kind of like how a writer today in the Western tradition might reference a line from Shakespeare, right? Someone who is so or, influential. Or it actually, 
Um, yes. You can take it a little further because there are words that only exist in Shakespeare unless you were intentionally quoting Shakespeare. Yeah. And so like Homeric Greek has words in it that only appear that are just in completely unique text. to the Hom- Homeric epics. Yes. Yeah. I can't think of one off the top of my head about Shakespeare, but I d- my brain went luggage. Yeah, nobody first- uses that unless they're invoking <laughs> Shakespeare. That's a great, that's a good one. Ah, <laughs> uh, I got to go pick up my luggage as Ophelia once did. <laughs> it's like, think of a Shakespeare character. Think of a Shakespeare character. Oh, oh, oh you picked a good one. <laughs> Somebody definitely had agency. Ooh, okay. We're just in like a, like a weird, we're caught in like a drain of like Homer and Shakespeare right now. Let's bust out. Like we just get out. Yeah. The Iliad. Oh no, it's Homer. Contains a catalog of nations that took part in the Trojan War. In book three, Herodotus uses an extremely similar format to sum up all Persian provinces. So he's using, love it. Using a, a framework. In book seven. I love that so much. I just. Good. I love it so much. I love I love it. I love the catalog of ships and I love the catalog of provinces. And fun fact that I'm sharing. I told you I was going to be interrupting you with fun facts. Um, I deserve it at this point. The catalog of ships mm. in the Iliad was like <laughs> Doritos. A banger. Lays. Like people loved it. What? Funyuns. Oh, no, that's the catalog of chips. I'm so sorry. Get out. <laughs> Get out of my Zoom. Um, I'm the but, host. Like, people, you can't kick me out. <laughs> Amber has left the chat. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, people loved it. It was like the most, it was it was an extremely popular um, book of the Iliad. That's and, amazing like, people to People would like request it because they would just be like, oh, Do they he's going to say it. He's going to say it. And they're like, their favorite. 20 ships from there. And they're just like, ah! <laughs> And so people loved it. And I'd like to think the same thing for uh, for like the catalog of provinces. Persian provinces. Like, they said us. They said it's just like everybody doing like, it's me. It's me. I'm I'm Samaria. Um and um and so I my my other my my languishing fiction project that isn't the one I finished, um is is a Homeric thing. And I want to do a catalog of ships, but about militias. Ah, and I was kind of hoping you'd say world. like cruise ships or something. No. No. Okay. No. But I, I love it. I love the catalog of ships like as a device. As a work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I it's it was like the easiest translation for me because I'm just like boats. <laughs> boats. <laughs> like I got this. Boats one. on boats on boats. <laughs> I love that you love that. Thanks. I love it for me. Sometimes Herodotus copies scenes from Homer. In his description of the Battle of Thermopylae, which I have to tell myself every time is not Thermopylae, he tells how the Spartans and Persians fought about the body of Leonidas. This is impossible in a hoplite battle, which is the type of warfare Herodotus describes. So that's the the foot soldiers, as mentioned, with very heavy shields, and uh, they they wouldn't have been able to to fight in the way that he describes. But it does echo a scene from the Iliad in which the Greeks and Trojans fight about the body of the fallen hero Patroclus. And so if you're on Twitter uh, and you want to get a giggle, um, follow at wrong p-t-r-c-h-l-l-s wrong patricles which is made up mistaken quotes 
from the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. I will say no more, but it's worth a follow. It's extremely Tumblr, it's, but it always makes me laugh. It, yeah. Yeah, if yeah, you're into that kind go, of thing, it, it's worth a giggle. In a way, despite some of the caveats we're going to get into, Herodotus was what we might call an empirical researcher. And actually, in ancient Greek, at the time when he would have been writing, historia meant, as Amber said, inquiry or research. And it's largely because of Herodotus's work that the meaning has changed to what it is now. Herodotus was interested in events that were in living memory and could be verified. For example, he seems to have interviewed the survivors of the Battle of Marathon. Maybe. But admittedly, interviews are an unreliable source, but it must be said that Herodotus did a remarkable job. When we can check the histories, and we'll get into this, you know, checking history with archaeology is kind of our jam, it often turns out to be at least somewhat trustworthy. And so even though Herodotus makes some serious mistakes and writes about some things that are absolutely absurd, stay tuned, he wrote a reasonably accurate, from the Greek perspective, description uh-huh. of the century before his birth. So, I mean, context is always key, right? So keep in mind that he's writing as a Greek, with a Greek education, writing about... And Greek biases. And Greek biases, writing about part of Greek history. Oddly, despite uh, the the fanfare he gets now, Herodotus was hardly appreciated in his own time. People admired his entertaining way of telling stories, but they didn't believe them. For almost 2,000 years, people considered him just a teller of excellent tales and thought all these strange customs were merely inventions. And so we're going to have a segment later um, of some of the things that Herodotus describes that are absolutely not real, really? Kind of, but we will also talk about some real archaeological evidence for things he got right. And so if you are interested in the histories, there is uh, a hyperlinked table of contents for it from Livius, or if you're pronouncing it all Roman, Livius.org that we will have linked in the show notes. You can enjoy that. And I can also um, include a link to the translation on the Perseus project. Great. So... If you are a, if you're a baby Greek student, it's in Eng- there's English and then there's the Greek also. So um, my whole jam, because you you know me parasocially, Anna knows me personally. Um, my whole jam here, and the reason why I chose Herodotus for my very special birthday episode, is historiography itself. So historiography is sort of the study of the discipline of history and sort of the writing of history, like what is what is determined fact, how narratives are created. So who creates historical accounts? Who are they created for? Who are they consulting? Like what sources are they consulting? Um, who gets left out? And what does their side of the story look like? And also what is the point of history? Like what is the point of writing history? And so um, something that Herodotus does is, um, and is arguably the first person to have done this, um, what he does is he wants to understand why things happened and um, sort of using the past to understand the present. Um, and so they're sort of in sort of ancient histories. There's sort of, you have the writing of history that is there to um, inform good behavior and like inform why we do things and, and sort of, have like almost like an ideological aspect to sort of explain why we do the things that we do or why we don't do the things we don't do. 
but um, this this one is much more um, what Herodotus says is much more philosophical and sort of introspective in a way. Um, and if you want to learn more about historiography, uh, there is a really really excellent book that is sort of an introductory text. It's written as kind of a textbook for um, for sort of uh, students of history. Um, on his historiography, and it's called From Herodotus to HNet, The Story of Historiography. Um, and it's by Jeremy Popkin, and um, I'll, include, um, I'll include that in the show notes. It's and a book it's, club it's really book. great. It's a book club book. Boop sort boop. of, I mean, like, I guess like the default book club book this week is the histories, but well, you can read the source text. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> from Herodotus to HNet is really great. And so something that um, is just sort of curious um is that Herodotus um was Herodotus and Thucydides were both Greek historians and Greek writers of history and they were um only just earlier than the earliest histories that were written in what's today China and so you see sort of this development of traditions of history writing and you see sort of the purposes of history writing and, um, and, and it helps to me, it, in my mind, it helps us looking at sort of ancient histories and, um, and like what gets taken from that through, through history, like through time, through like down to the present. Um, it tells us a lot about what, what the readers of history were trying to get out of it. I love Herodotus because I love travel writing. And I, uh, and I also love, oh, I don't know if love's the right word. I also uh, take a lot away from stories of like uh, people in culturally dominant spaces, like from culturally dominant groups going into other spaces and just like, going nuts about it like i just find that very fascinating look at and these so, people they're so different this is a thing like they these, do isn't that weird and and just sort of like the capacity to believe things that are just like not possible and just like that like physically impossible like things that you can believe about people and things that just like don't make sense because you don't see them as like fully human i think that like even the like tradition of very like orientalist travel writing like it reaches back to herodotus and i guess the idea of the um the historian from your own cultural group is a much more reliable narrator so you're more you're more inclined to accept what they say about a very other group that you've never experienced firsthand so yeah. if he's like they only have one leg and they use it to hop around and everybody has hats made of oranges and, and you just and go they yeah, sure, only that checks fish. Out. that's all they eat they only eat fish fish bread with fish on it what um and and there and so i got in uh i got in like a a weird fight with everyone in my latin class um because um 300 the The film 300 yeah um from, from the auteur Zack snyder came out um when i was in undergrad yep me too and it, yeah. I was there. <laughs> um, and I argued that uh, because and, and there was understandably a very large outcry about how it was super racist and super orientalist and the portrayal the, like, of Xerxes is what you're talking the, about, right? What I'm talking about the portrayal of 
everyone who wasn't Greek. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so like all of the Persians yeah. and like the Persian army. And um, I argued that it was accurate to the source material. Yeah, and because I was like depicted edgy, I was, <laughs> I was edgy, but oh. also I like believe I'm like more like the only criticism I will take from that is that Zack Snyder probably wasn't thinking about. He probably wasn't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we can give him credit for that. But I. I also but, accept your perspective. But when you have just like these like unreasonably shiny beefcakes <laughs> that are like barely wearing clothes that represent like the Greeks. And, and then you've got like this sort of like decadent, like coated, like gold like, covered sort of, be- oily behemoth. Well, but, yeah. And just like, like queer coated kind of like, like grotesque, um, alien, dark alien, like population that just is like, like, that's that's kind of what that's kind of part of it. That's like kind of it. Um, and so I find that I find that very fascinating because I see a lot of, you know, it's it like for me it's sort of like a, a slightly wavy line from from that to the way that um, casting calls for actors of arguably Middle Eastern descent work in. Um, in sort of post 9-11 like tv network tv and like that sort of thing like i think it's kind of yeah it's kind of the same thing um uh, it's that is a part of like the western canon is like oriental other yeah othering um yeah. but the other thing the thing that i like don't Herodotus is my problematic faith but the other thing that like i truly love about it is um something that comes from book one um you gonna read will, me a story i'm gonna quote from Herodotus. Okay. These are the stories of the Persians and the Phoenicians. For my part, I shall not say that this or that story is true, but I shall identify the one who I myself know did the Greek unjust deeds and thus proceed with my history and speak of small and great cities of men alike. For many states that were once great have now become small, and those that were great in my time were small before. Knowing, therefore, that human prosperity never continues in the same place, I shall mention both alike." And I love that. I love the sort of the idea of like continuity and that there's sort of this, take this as a warning or like take this as encouragement and that um, uh, that things change. You are small. Um, you can be big. Herodotus as yeah, a motivational and, speaker. Well, and like you, you're big now. Watch out. Watch it. Yeah. Um, and so I... I, I love Herodotus for those reasons. And I also love Herodotus because I was introduced to it by the English patient. <laughs> well, for your opinions on the English patient, 300, and any <laughs> other assorted media related to Herodotus, write into Amber at the Dirt Podcast at gmail.com with the subject line, happy birthday. Okay, so remember, listeners and Amber, how I said we talk about how Herodotus got some stuff right and there's archaeology to prove it? Okay. Here we go. Mm, I do know the bar The bar is low. Yeah, here's where you're going to laugh at that joke about the bar is low. And here we go with live science really nailing the headline. Quote, 2,500 years ago, Herodotus described a weird ship. Now, archaeologists have found it. Which, like, it's not that's wrong. what he did. Yeah. It's just like, that's a weird boat. <laughs> this one weird ship. Okay. 
<laughs> One of the most elusive boats from the ancient world, a mysterious river barge that famed Greek historian Herodotus described nearly 2,500 years ago, has finally been discovered. Herodotus dedicated 23 lines of his Historia to this type of boat, known as a baris. I'll pause for you to laugh at our joke. Eh? After eh? seeing the construction of one during his travels to Egypt in 450 BCE. In his writings, Herodotus described how the long barge had one rudder that passed through a hole in the keel, a mast made of acacia wood, and sails made from papyrus. However, modern archaeologists had never laid eyes on such a boat until the ancient sunken port city of Thonis Heraklion was discovered on the Egyptian coast in the year 2000 CE. This port boasted more than 70 sunken vessels dating from the 8th to the 2nd century BCE. One of those boats, archaeologists recently discovered, matched the description of the en enigmatic Baris. And hey, as we showed in our Pleasure Barges episode, just because you don't see boats that are talked about in historical text doesn't always mean that those boats couldn't have existed. And there will be a reason why shortly. So in the Historia, Herodotus describes how the barge's builders used to, quote, cut planks two cubits long, which is about 40 inches or 100 centimeters, and arrange them like bricks, end quote. Herodotus also wrote that, quote, on the strong and long tenons or pieces of wood, they insert two cubit planks. When they have built their ship in this way, they stretch beams over them. They obturate or block up the seams from within with papyrus, end quote. Uh, so ancient Egyptians used barris vessels to transport goods such as fish, stones, and even troops along the Nile River. Or did they? Fish troops. Hmm? Fish troops? Not fish troops. No, these are not fish people. So, so did they? Yeah, turns out, yeah, they definitely did. So one of those 70 sunken vessels that archaeologists explored, Ship 17, which sounds like a seafood restaurant to me. Oh, no. I mean, don't go to that seafood restaurant. Just that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> Uh, it had features that matched Herodotus's description. Scuba diving archaeologists noted that it had a previously unknown architecture that included thick planks that were held together with smaller pieces of wood, which is mortise and, like, mortise and tenon a, building. Two cubits. Is it? Oh, wait, wait. Could it be? Two cubits. <laughs> One of the team commented, quote, Herodotus describes the boats as having long internal ribs. Nobody really knew what that meant. That structure's never been seen archaeologically before, end quote. Now, originally, Ship 17 would have been quite long, <laughs> with long internal ribs, measuring up to 92 feet or 28 meters. That is quite long. And it likely sank in the first half of the 5th century BCE. That was the end of its working life as a whole, but the ship itself was actually probably quite a bit older because once it was no longer seaworthy, it was reused as a piece of maritime infrastructure, which, a floating jetty. So this is another opportunity to mull over the life histories of objects and how the way they appear in the archaeological record isn't always the way they started out. We're an inventive species, and often we reuse materials of all kinds. And speaking of materials... <laughs> Let's take a quick ad break and then come back for more. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. 
We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. Me again. Hello. Hi. It's Amber's birthday. What did you give me? And Well, it's your birthday and yet... I've gotten, I've been gifted this next section. The parts of Herodotus's writing that are just absolutely bananas and even downright silly, and yet all of the cases here have at least one plausible-ish explanation. So, Is, are any of them racism? Um, no. Oh. Perhaps misunderstanding, but not racism, I think. We'll, we'll see where we end up. Yeah, let's see where it goes. In a description of the Bactrian region of India. Yes, that's where Bactrian camels come from. Is that Afghanistan? In in Herodotus, he describes it as India. Okay. Weird. That's weird. It's two places. It's like saying the Canadian part of South America. (laughs) Is the United States. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Herodotus writes, For it is in this part of India that the sandy desert lies. Here, in this desert, there live amid the sand great ants in size somewhat less than dogs, but bigger than foxes. The Persian king has a number of them, which have been caught by hunters in the land whereof we are speaking. Those ants make their dwellings underground and, like the Greek ants, which they very much resemble in shape, throw up sand heaps as they burrow. Now the sand which they throw up is full of gold! Dang! When the Indians reach the place where the gold is, they fill their bags with the sand and ride away at their best speed. The ants, however, scenting them, as the Persians say, rush forth in pursuit. Now, these animals are, they declare, so swift. So you notice here how he's, Herodotus is saying, like, the Persians He's like, I'm not saying Yeah, I'm not saying this, but this is what I've heard. Um, I'm just relating it. Yeah, I'm just the messenger. These animals are, they declare, so swift that there is nothing in the world like them. If it were not, therefore, that the Indians get a start while the ants are mustering, not a single gold gatherer could escape. So, gold digging giant ants? Wait, they're like, what are they going to do, beat you up? Going to get you. Or take the... (laughs) Going to get you, devour you. I left out that part of the Herodotus. Oh, they eat you? Yeah. There's there's this whole okay. thing about how if they're going on a gold hunting expedition, they bring um, multiple camels. We're going on a gold hunt. We're going on a gold hunt. Uh, and we're bringing in three camels because as long as we can run faster than the camels, we'll get away. Yep. Doesn't end great for the camels in this story. So gold digging giant ants, preposterous. 
or perhaps not, or maybe yes, hang on and you can decide. In 1996, Marlies Simons wrote this for the New York Times. I am quoting. The fabulous tale of the giant ants that dug up gold in a far-off El Dorado. Okay, first, I need to... Come on. Well, 1996. Okay. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> listeners to the dirt. El Dorado was a person. It never described a mythic place. It described a ruler... Is it a goldfish? No, it oh. was a person. It was like a ruler <laughs> that that was sacrificed. Okay. Just uh, look up the history of El Dorado sometime. That's all. Okay. The fabulous tale of the giant ants that dug up gold and enriched the Persian Empire has circulated for some 2,500 years. Historians have variously recorded it as fact, mocked it as extravagant, and passed it along the ancient grapevine. It was popular in Athens and Rome, and Alexander the Great, on his way to India, is said to have known about the tale. Scholars and fortune hunters have tried to explain the enigma for centuries. Now, a team of explorers says it has solved the puzzle. The explorers believe they have pinpointed the land of the legendary gold-digging ants and the people who profited in one of the most inaccessible regions of the Himalayas along the upper Indus River. They say the outsized furry ants, first described by Herodotus in the 5th century BCE, are in fact big marmots. <laughs> These creatures, Herodotus calls them bigger than a fox, though not so big as a dog, are still throwing up gold-bearing soil from deep underground as they dig their burrows. So this is a real thing that happens. Marmots are real animals. Most important, the explorers say they have found indigenous people on the same high plateau who say that for generations they have collected gold dust from the marmot's work. A marmot is a type of burrowing squirrel, thick-bodied and with a bushy fur. Michel Pessel, a French ethnologist, said, quote, I think this confirms the legend that has fascinated so many people. I think it vindicates Herodotus, who has often been called a liar. End quote. Okay, Michelle. Okay, Michelle. <laughs> D'accord. Other explorers have suggested that the furry ants of antiquity were marmots, and it is wild that multiple people reached that conclusion. Like, maybe marmots. <laughs> but until now, there were no known reports of the site where indigenous people actually collected and sifted sand to get the marmots gold. That place, Monsieur Pessel said, is the Dansar Plain, a high plateau overlooking the Indus River near the tense ceasefire line between India okay. and Pakistan, which was there okay. in 1996. It is an isolated region where the Indus comes roaring through deep gorges on its way south. Beautiful. Gorges, even. On both sides of the river, Mr. Pessel said, are small settlements of Minaro tribal people, an ancient remnant who have remained so isolated in the high valleys that they still preserve some Stone Age customs. So uh, it was written in 1996. I see the face you're making. This was written whoa. in 1996. Like, whoa, I know. <laughs> I know. But they, so the ants were marmots? So how did that word or description get muddled? Is there a word for a similar small mammal in Greek or was ant somehow the, the closest po possible noun, which I doubt because mouse, they had mice. Greeks had mice. <laughs> they sure did. Yeah. Who knows? Not me. Although, uh, as I alluded to, Herodotus later asserted in book three <laughs> that the ants were predators of adult camels hunting and devouring them. And mar marmots probably have never done this. So, what, so there's that now, one. Michel. Quoi maintenant, Michel? Okay. So, <gasps> Want another one? Are you still processing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I love this. Okay, great. So <laughs> how about this one? Relevant to our recent Mummies Day episode. Mummy enemas. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa, I don't like those two words together. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, in book two, 
This is one of the ones where we're like, eh, probably not. Spoilies. <laughs> In book two, Herodotus gives lengthy descriptions of Egypt, discussing the Nile River, mummification, Egyptian gender roles, animals, and holy festivals. However, most historians doubt whether Herodotus actually ever visited Egypt. For example, he gives detailed descriptions of the three great pyramids, yet fails to mention the Sphinx, which feels like a major oversight. It's, it's really big and it's right there. <laughs> what, has the Sphinx ever been completely buried by sand? Because if the Sphinx were buried, but the pyramids were still partially uncovered, they'd still look like little pyramids. <laughs> this is one of the most amazing things you've ever said. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad we've recorded it for posterity. <laughs> I don't. Because <laughs> a pyramid's always a pyramid, no matter where you start the bottom. <laughs> I love that this has become like weird Herodotus epilogue. Yeah, I feel like maybe there's a really bad, it was a bad sand season. <laughs> so additionally... In addition to not writing about the Sphinx, Herodotus does write about embalming, describing the three methods ranging from most expensive to least expensive. You got your bronze package, your silver package. Herodotus claims. This is also, this is great because this is like very Herodotus. So very just travel like, writing. I'm going to talk, talk about this. Let this me tell you so about weird. this. This is bonkers. It's just like, you know, he like met someone at a gas station and he's like, this is amazing. Tell so me more. Ways. <laughs> Herodotus claims. Um, also, also, before yes. you, be, we're. I'm going to talk about like things like places that he probably hasn't gone because maybe he would have like not said this. He said that um, Babylon had a hundred gates and it like probably had maybe eight at the time he would have been there. And he said that like every woman in Babylon and Babylonia like has to be a sex worker. Again, even if he was <laughs> there, like, he's writing from the perspective of a Greek with biases. Yeah. So it's, so it's just sort of like, yeah. comes in and be like, I don't. Let me tell you about this. It's wild. Let me tell you this really weird thing, but like, I don't what? Know. A landmark? I don't know. It's just what this guy said. Okay. Herodotus claimed that elite deceased Egyptians' organs were removed from the left side of their abdomens, while commoners received cedar oil enemas to quickly remove the stomach and organs from the body. Just... Fire them on out of there. Anthropologists in 2013 used CT scans of mummies and three-dimensional reconstructions to discredit Herodotus's description of the Egyptian embalming press. I want to see that grant proposal. They, they're like, in conclusion, they didn't use cedar oil to just blow it out. Yeah. Like they... Yep. <laughs> we did a CT scan and... Seems, <laughs> seems like not... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you know, their conclusion was this was inaccurate. So we don't know exactly what sources Herodotus used to get his information on Egyptian customs, but he most likely relied heavily on conversations with locals who, first of all, probably didn't speak Greek, which probably resulted... I'm not being a Herodotus apologist here. I mean, at that time, they... Maybe they would have. They might have. There may have been some lost or skewed information. Also... Maybe, probably. He was writing from the perspective of, well, these people are so exotic. Aren't their customs weird? So there's a lot of that. A lot of flavor. So I got one more for you. Uh-huh. Winged snakes. Oh, the snakes. Snakes. Snakes of Arabia. Herodotus opens this scene by reporting what he saw when he went to find out about winged serpents. So this was sort of a, a myth about a myth about Arabia and 
um, he was like, I got to go see if this is true. Intrepid reporter Herodotus. He strapped on his sandals and took his notepad. Off he went. And he says that he saw, quote, bones of serpents and spines in quantity, end quote. And, and spines here is not referring to vertebrae. It's referring to, to spikies. He then oh. goes on to say, quote, and the story goes that at the beginning of spring, winged serpents from Arabia fly towards Egypt, end quote. So, again, credit to our boy here. He's distinguishing carefully between reporting other people's stories and reporting what he himself saw. In the case of the winged snakes, he carefully doesn't say that he's seen bodies of winged snakes or he, he hasn't seen them flying. Instead, he sees skeletons and spines. So you get the impression that he doesn't place much faith in the story, but he saw bones. Did see bones. He saw bones. So like the other two examples, this one also might be based on a tiny nugget of truth. I found an article titled, quote, The Winged Snakes of Arabia and the Fossil Site of Mahtesh Ramon in the Negev, uh, and a few other sources that also suggest that Herodotus may have seen or been shown fossil remains of various extinct species. So again, you'll note that he only ever says he saw bones and spines, not live specimens. Some of those may have been fossils of winged dinosaurs, which would be reasonable bases for ideas about winged serpents. This one is a bit more tenuous than either of the explanations for the previous two stories, but I still thought it was very interesting. So, yes, Herodotus spun some unbelievable tales and probably took a lot of sources at face value or embellished for flavor. But it's always fascinating in the context of historiography to look for connections to real things that might have been the root of these stories, thinking about why did this happen? Why did this get written down? Why did this turn into the legend that it did? So... Let's have one more ad and then wrap up with some other fun examples of Herodotus maybe being right a little bit. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're, we're back, and I, I'd like to think that the the winged snacks of Arabia was just a... Um, like a reason that somebody gave him when he's like, why is this incense so expensive? And they're like, oh, you know, the snakes. This is the, because. Was this, was it cinnamon that was so expensive? No, that's, that's different. That's the rock. I'm talking about, I'm talking about frankincense. Frankincense, right. Right. Because. And so frankincense, which, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of markup coming from Yemen, but that's where the, the, but the, the winged serpents were said to, interfere with the, with the harvest harvest yeah. so i like to think that it's like a like some shopkeeper being like oh no they got 
oh, they got the taxes and they got the snakes. And it's just. (laughs) Meanwhile, Herodotus is in like a tourist shop looking at a a T-shirt that says I heart Arabia. (laughs) My friend went to Babylon and all I got was this stupid T-shirt or something. (laughs) Really pokey. Toga. Tunica. That's all Latin, isn't it? Mm. So um, Herodotus has popped up in some other fun places over the years, not just the English patient in my as yet unpublished manuscript. Um, so here are some of those. This is from the New York Times in 2007. <laughs> Geneticists have added an edge to a 2,500-year-old debate over the origin of the Etruscans, a people whose brilliant and mysterious civilization dominated northwestern Italy for centuries until the rise of the Roman Republic in 510 BCE. Several new findings support a view held by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, but unpopular among archaeologists, <laughs> that the Etruscans originally migrated to Italy from the Near East. Because Italians take pride in the Roman Empire and the Etruscan state that preceded it, I can confirm this because the spa I'm going to this weekend has an Etruscan facial. Oh, what? <laughs> Does that involve? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The article continues. Asserting a foreign origin for the Etruscans has long been politically controversial in Italy. Massimo Palatino, the Dean of Modern Etruscan Studies in Italy, who died in 1995, held that because no one questioned that the French, say, developed in France, the same assumption should be made about the Etruscans. Yeah, they're there. They must have always been there. (laughs) No one asked the French. <laughs> Quack? No. Uh, and Antonio Toroni, a geneticist at the University of Pavia, said, quote, someone who had a different position didn't get a job in archaeology, end quote. Um, Herodotus wrote that the Etruscans immigrated from Lydia, a region on the eastern coast of ancient Turkey not too far from where Herodotus was from. Um, After an 18-year famine in Lydia, Herodotus reports, the king dispatched half the population to look for a better life elsewhere. Under the leadership of his son, Tyrannus, the immigrating Lydians built ships, loaded all the stores they needed, and sailed from Smyrna, now the Turkish port of Izmir, until reaching Umbria in Italy. The study used mitochondrial DNA data from Merlot, Merlot? Yeah, I mean, it's a, <laughs> Cabernet. Merlot. Um, a small former Etruscan town in, <laughs> in an out-of-the-way place whose population may not have changed all that much since Etruscan times. Right. So saying if that <laughs> they all have beautiful facial skin, just Great skin. glowing. No, no but the, the idea is that if the population hasn't changed much since Etruscan times, then that population yeah. probably reflects the origin of the population in their DNA. Yes. Yes. Okay. In Merlot. Yes. Um, mitochondrial DNA holds clues to geographical origins because local mutations produce traceable lineages as people spread from the ancestral homeland of modern humans in Northeastern Africa. Some lineages are found only in Africa, some in Europe and others in Asia. Yep. And some, as we learned uh, on our copper old copper complex um some all over the place some are all over the place in tuscany as a whole part of the ancient etruscan region of etruria the Toroni team found 11 minor mitochondrial dna lineages that occur- that occurred nowhere else in europe and are shared only with near eastern people Aww. 
These findings, the team says, quote, support a direct and rather recent genetic input from the Near East, a scenario in agreement with the Lydian origin of the Etruscans. Recent, See, that recent in, in, the in like DNA terms, which is yes. still a long time ago. Still a long time. Maybe I'm going to get mitochondrial DNA smeared on my face. Seems unethical. <laughs> Probably not. There's also an account by Herodotus about the union between Amazon warrior women. So not the Amazon from last episode, just so you know. This was like the mythical Mythical question mark? We're not sure. Maybe. Mm. Uh, So here's the short version from The New Yorker. With heavy uh, editorializing and judging by me. All right. Many thousands of years ago, a group of Greek raiders ventured into what is now northern Turkey. Traveling across the steppe, they came across a group of warrior women. The Greeks kidnapped them, locked them in the holds of their ships, and set sail for home. But the Amazons escaped. They recovered their weapons and killed their captors. Because they were horsewomen and didn't know how to sail, the ships drifted far off course. Eventually, though, they landed in the Crimea. Nearby, there happened to be a settlement of Scythians. Most Scythians were nomadic horse-riding people of the steppe. But these were royal Scythians. Wealthy traders who would settle in towns. Was there a to royal avoid Scythian being... facial option? No, I mm. don't think so. Should take that up this with is the a, This is a Tuscan-themed. This is Tuscan-oriented, this spa. It might just be olive oil. They might just goop you full of Bertoli. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Stay tuned next episode to see how Amber's birthday spot day went. I smell um, like salad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gross. Um, to avoid being raided, the Royal Scythians sent out scouts, which I read as scoots. <laughs> they sent out, <laughs> sent out scoots. Uh, who discovered that the strange marauders were Amazons. The Scythians found this intriguing. They had planned to send soldiers to kill the marauders. Instead, they assembled a party of nice young men. That was in the original article. That wasn't me. <laughs> nice. That's good. Nice young men. Go meet the girls. It's <laughs> like a bunch of, bunch of doctors. I'm like, you know, like, accountants. They're, they're nice. They got good jobs. Yeah. Got a little pager clipped they on there. clean up well. Yeah. Um, life in town was luxurious, but it lacked a certain something. The royal Scythian women mostly stayed indoors, doing chores and feeling bored. Maybe a few fearless, untamed Amazons could spice things up. Wow. This, uh, <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> Where's this screenplay? I know. I'm on board. The, the, the Scythian women are just waiting, waiting for the Amazons to come along and <laughs> shake it up. <laughs> Soon... The Amazons and the Scythians consolidated their camps. That's Herodotus reports. That's the euphemism. What? Consolidated. <laughs> Herodotus reports of the Sarmatians, uh, the people descended from that union, created a society characterized by gender equality in which men and women led the same sort of life. Were they indoors or outdoors? Which was it? Well, they were no longer bored, whichever one it was. <laughs> so Adrian Mayer, a classicist based at Stanford, who was by all accounts the world's leading expert on ancient female fighters, argues that even if it is not literally true in all its particulars, it is still broadly true. Hey, because they're broads, get it? 
Sorry. The evidence, she writes, points to the fact that they were that there really were Scythian Amazons. In some archaeological digs in Eurasia, as many as 37% of the graves contained the bones and weapons of horsewomen who fought alongside men. Horsemen. She writes, quote, arrows used for hunting and battle are the most common weapons buried with women, but swords, daggers, spears, armor, shields, and sling stones are also found. So, end quote, these were the women the Greeks encountered in their expeditions around the Black Sea. They inspired similar stories among travelers from ancient Persia, Egypt, China, and other places. So here's the really fun part. I got so excited when I got to this paragraph. <laughs> you wrote it on all caps. <laughs> it's so cool. And also very funny. So, Mayer worked with a linguist and a vase expert. Which I think are um, two different people. But eh. I mean, save some for the rest of us. <laughs> <Maybe you're> gonna... <laughs> to examine some of the words on vases depicting Amazons. Previously, they had been considered nonsense word, nonsense words, <laughs> because well, I they that's what the Greeks called barbarians because they went yeah, but so they the Greek they were in Greek letters and yeah. the Greek letters made sounds, but previously people had looked at them and just gone, well, that's not a Greek word, and then just like left it at that. But. Amazing, but. They turned out to be, quote, suitable names for male and female Scythian warriors in their own languages, translated for the first time after more than 2,500 years, end quote. So these were ancient Circassian names, which include, I don't know, because it starts with P-K-P. Poopies. Just tell us what the translation of that one means. Worthy of armor. Great. I hope you keep all that in. <laughs> I shall. Um, <laughs> Kepis. Um, Anna, you want to tell me what the name Kepis means? <laughs> Which translates to hot flanks. Barkita, princess, and Hasa, one who heads a council. So just so y'all know, Circassians are an ethnic group native to Circassia, a former country and region on the North Caucasus along the northeastern shore of the Black Sea. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, most of them have either been uh, sort of evicted or uh, are victims of mass genocide. So that's it's a real tragedy. But uh, referring to the Circassian names refers to that, mm-hmm. okay. that group. Yeah. Um, so, Anna, you... You got any thoughts? Other <laughs> no, than I'm just busy laughing flanks. about hot flanks. Um, mostly my thoughts are that I think it's the value of historiography is immense. So I think history and archaeology kind of exist in this complementary relationship where it's really important to have archaeology as a companion to history to to ground truth what is said in his, the historical record to see if the actual archaeological material bears that out in terms of the actual lived experience of real people. And I think history is a wonderful resource, but you have to think about it in its whole context. So what is the author's perspective in writing? What does the author, what might the author think about the subjects that they're writing about? Are there biases inherent in that author's perspective just by virtue of where they're from, when they're writing, who they're writing about, um, which in turn is why historiography is so important. And so, well, yes. 
And all of those questions that you just asked, like all of the, the sort of merits of historiography that you just talked about, are also applicable to archaeological interpretation. Yes. So I think that like not only are they sort of hand in hand, also I think they're kind of parallel. And and I I think that archaeologists would be behooved by, they would be behooved to consider historiography and think about historiography because you're doing the same thing. You're constructing narratives about the past but the evidence that you're using, because there's a lot of room for ambiguity in in terms of interpreting archaeological data. Yeah, the way that I presented it just now suggested that all archaeological interpretation is is empirical fact, and that's absolutely not the case. Unfortunately, some archaeologists do think that. I know. I don't Um, think that you think that, but I think there are a lot of people that that sort of get into it. Yeah, and I don't want to characterize it as that at all. It's, um, yeah, Archaeology and history are, yes, are parallel disciplines that need to be considered and challenged in the same way. And and what we've talked about with Herodotus today is also, um, you know, talking about how he's reliable because he can be ground truthed by find like the mitochondrial DNA of the original immigrants to Etruria, mm-hmm. the sort of finding the weird ship and being like, oh my goodness, it's a Barris. Like you have those sorts of things that are kind of data that you can you can cling to. And so you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this. I'm gonna buy this. And um and then in among all of that are biases. Things implicit value judgments mm-hmm. against other populations, biases. And if you are just focusing on the data points and you're sort of taking everything along with it as like, well, that's data, that's been ground truth, I'm going to go with it, um, then you're setting yourself up to consume a lot of inaccurate stuff. And so I think that that's... I, I you got to take everything on a case-by-case... Case, yeah, a really case-by-case basis and and challenge, challenge everything. Um, because, yeah. because otherwise... You can sort of fall into your own pitfalls. No, my pits. (laughs) Now I have that recording. (laughs) That's going to be my new ringtone for you. (laughs) Uh, But mostly, I'm really glad you chose this topic. I think it's it was I think it was a fun one to talk about, and I think it was a really good one to talk about, and and something that uh, we've sort of talked around in several of our episodes in terms of. thinking about the, the biases inherent in historical reporting and things like that. But it's really kind of neat to go back to a source. So I hope yeah. you enjoyed your birthday episode. Oh, thank you so much. I did. I really enjoyed this. Hooray. You know, I, I think if my life had gone slightly differently, I would have probably pursued a PhD in classics and been like a Herodotus specialist. Glad we have this podcast. I'm so glad we have this podcast. <laughs> I have health insurance. <laughs> That's the other thing that I have that I probably wouldn't have. Not from this podcast. I had done that. Not from this podcast, though. But thank you to our patrons, nonetheless. Thank you. Thank you for supporting it's the show. It's not your fault, no. patrons. No, no, no. no. It's not your job to get us health insurance. Call your representatives. Um, so, listeners, <laughs> you want to make it your job. It's all brand. So... <laughs> So listeners, I hope you've enjoyed my birthday episode. We're going to wrap it up here, but we'll be back in your ears next week with a new episode, uh, which you will be able to find. No one's birthday, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 
uh, Spotify, Audible, or wherever else you like to listen. We are um, also on social media yeah. where we post other archaeological news stories, dumb jokes, memes, or memes, and pet photos. And you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together, plus merch, including Anna's amazing uh, Play-Doh yelling Atlantis was a metaphor. Yeah, um, you can find that on stickers, items, t-shirts. Yep. Um, all that plus our syllabus for educators and so much more over on our website, thedirtpod.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Happy birthday, bud. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.